We made it to our number three session of our looking at the life of Elijah. And we've arrived at 1 Kings chapter 18, which David so brilliantly read to us. Now, if you're like me, uh, which you might be or might not, I've always kind of read 1 Kings 18 and read the first bit and gone, brilliant, this is a lovely little bit, but get to the next bit because the next bit is where all the fire and the lightning and the, you know, all the kind of everything happens, which Simon gets next week. I phoned him up and said, can I have the second part as well? And he said, no, 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 you've got to stick with the first 18 verses. So I went back to it and I prayed and I prayed and I prayed and I thought, well, it's just one man meeting another man ready for the next bit, which is the most exciting bit in the whole world. And Simon said, no, just the first 18 verses, go back and pray. So with that in mind, we're going to pray and hopefully God's going to speak through two random men meeting. Let's pray. Father God, We know all of your word is scripture. It is God-breathed and it is alive and is able to speak to us and through us. So we ask that today you will take these verses and you will inspire us, you will encourage us, you will convict us, you will purify us. And you will send us out with a new understanding of your word, but also a new understanding of how to live your word and your ways. So we pray for your blessing on each of us today. Open our ears, prepare our hearts, make our souls ready to receive you. And may your Holy Spirit sweep through this place as we look together at the life of Obadiah and of Elijah. In Jesus' name, amen. So God is about to show the people of Israel who is boss. He's about to announce who is king of kings of kings of kings. He's there. He's about to do an incredible thing. If you remember, uh, they've been in a time of drought and it's been tough. It's been hard. But God is about to do something that's really going, oh, why are we just randomly going through? Anyone heard? Okay, good. He's uh, going to about to show uh, some everybody in the nation what is a, uh, who is king. And so uh, it's showtime. It's time where... Uh, I'm not touching anything. Go back. Go back. Is it just randomly going? This is going to go fun. Be short. He's about to show uh, the people of Israel who is boss. It's showtime. And he wants... King Ahab, remember him, boo, and his dastardly prophets of Baal, boo, to have a front row seat to the incredible things that are about to happen. And so he sends Elijah out to go and have a meeting with Ahab. And on the way to meet Ahab, Elijah actually bumps into his right-hand man, Obadiah. Now let's learn a little bit about these uh, guy called Obadiah, hopefully. Introducing Obadiah, for your knowledge, he's not the prophet who wrote uh, the uh, the Old Testament book that we have in the scripture. Obadiah was quite a common name, like Claire, there were four of those in my class. It was quite a common name at the time, meaning uh, devoted to the Lord or worship of the Lord. So he's not really mentioned anywhere else. It's just this little bit that he gets a mention in. His name does mean follower of the Lord, Lord with a big la. Uh, he is a worshipper of Yahweh. 
And as we read in 1 Kings uh, 18, verse 4, it describes him as a devout follower of the Lord. Let's read it. Obadiah was a devout believer of the Lord. While Jezebel was killing the Lord's prophets, Obadiah had taken a hundred prophets and hidden them in two caves, 50 in each, and he'd supplied them with food and water. Now, Jezebel was not a nice lady, as we have discovered and will discover. And she killed a number of the prophets of the Lord. But Ahab had inside knowledge and was able to hide a hundred of them in a way of protecting them. It was a rescue effort. And it's mentioned here, it's commended here. If it's in scripture, we go, well done, Obadiah. That's really good. God had used him in a dark period. And so from a simple reading of this text, we go, brilliant, Obadiah, a devout follower of the Lord. He believed in the Lord. He did something amazing for God. He was devoted and his practice showed that. He'd done good things for the people of God and he obviously had some knowledge of what Elijah looked like and who he was because as soon as he saw him we get found out that he bowed before him. He knew that Elijah was the one that God had sent. He's the good guy, right? In Ahab's rule. He's serving the one true God. Or is he? Let's look a little bit deeper into who Obadiah actually is. We learn that he was Ahab's right-hand man. Very uh, early on, we discover that uh, Obadiah was in charge of Ahab's palace. Now, this is a really important role. It's mentioned a number of times in the Old Testament. And it's a bit like the kind of operations manager for the king's palace. The Lord Chamberlain, you might want to say. He was a very, very important man. He was the most senior of the king's staff, the one in charge of the palace. Obadiah's role was to make sure that the palace and everything that happened in it ran really, really smoothly. Everything that happened there had to meet the king and queen's approval. He was the operations manager. And as we've seen from previous weeks of this, Ahab was not a nice man. I'd like you just to turn quickly back to uh, 1 Kings chapter 16. And let's just find out quite how evil he was. You may boo. I feel like I'm in panto, but you may boo. He was a properly, properly evil king. The Bible describes him in 1 Kings 16 verse 30. Ahab did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those who went before him. Now, the guys who went before him did quite a lot of evil things in the eyes of the Lord. But to be described as even more evil, is that a word? Even more evil than that is not high praise. If you look at uh, verses 31 and 34, it says, He considered it, considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam. Trivial. The sins of Jeroboam reached from child sacrifice through to extreme idolatry of all kinds of pagan gods. And then uh, in one version it says, and he even married Jezebel. I love the terminology used. He was so evil. He even married this woman Jezebel who was from another nation who came and corrupted the whole palace. They worshipped Baal, they made an Asherah pole, so they obviously worshipped fertility gods, 
And uh, the end of verse uh, chapter 16 says that the foundations of his palace cost him his firstborn and the gates of his nation um, cost him his youngest son. I dread to think what that even means. Ahab is not a nice king, to put it very politely. Verse 32 reminds us that he did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than did all of the kings of Israel before him. Wow. This was all going on in the palace. Who's in charge of the palace? Oh, thank you, Obadiah. Could all of these things be going on in Obadiah's uh, realm in his palace without him knowing about it? No. No. You see, this palace was full of unholy things. It had shrines everywhere to Baal, had an Asherah pole, you name it, it was going on there. This is a corrupt palace. And Obadiah was in charge of making sure everything in the palace ran smoothly. Wow. He was a devout follower of the Lord, a devout worshipper of the Lord, it says in one breath. And yet he oversaw all these things happening. And even more than that, in the verses we read uh, in chapter 18, we discover that not only is he the right-hand man of Ahab, he is in charge of the palace, he's also protecting Ahab's cattle rather than the people of Israel. He's been sent out to go and find uh, grass or water so that the cattle may be okay, so that they won't have to kill any of the prize uh, parts, the prize uh, cattle that they've got in the, uh, in the palace. Now, we know that there's been at least three years of drought by this point. What do you think the people were doing? They were starving. They were thirsty. But Ahab's mostly worried about his cattle and about himself and about keeping his wealth. So he sends Obadiah out as well and says, go, go and, you know, make sure my cattle are right. Don't worry about the dying, dying thousands. Don't worry about them. And then there is his act that he did for, Jesus, uh, for God hiding the prophets. But he did it in secret. He did God's work in secret. Now, maybe that was the only way. We don't know. He hid the prophets, yes. But if you start to compare Obadiah with Elijah, did Elijah do anything in secret, really? He stood up, as we've heard in the last few weeks, he stood up against a corrupt nation. He was called to stand up and to make God known, even at the risk of his own life. Obadiah did very, very much the opposite. It's a challenge, this passage, I think, because in one hand, Obadiah Gets told, we get told that he is a devout follower of the Lord. But then as we start to build the picture, we realize that he was complicit or compliant, at the very least, in all of the darkness that was going on in Israel at that time. 
He certainly wasn't taking a stand against the evil of Ahab's reign. He certainly wasn't standing strong like Elijah was. He certainly was compromising his faith, probably to the very, very core. There is no way this man could have reached this place of responsibility and power without making certain oaths to the gods of the palace. There is no way that this man could have got to the position of power that he was in without compromising his worship of Yahweh in every single way. Now, bear with me if you haven't watched it, but there's a great film called Frozen. Thank you. Some of you may burst into song. Now, this is mostly for those with children under the age of 20 and parents. But there's a chap in there called Mr. Weaseltown. And as I've been reading about Obadiah, he just feels like Mr. Weaseltown to me. Mr. Weaseltown is the kind of guy that wants to please and wants to keep power and is so, so excited when he might get, you know, that extra bit of power and responsibility. And to do that, he, uh, he sucks up to people. And to do that, he stays on the right hand of, of the right people. And to do that, he just kind of compromises who he is to the point where he's lost who he is. He also has some great dance moves, which I'm sure Obadiah didn't. That's just been there in my mind for you all week. Are you still with me? Good. (laughs) Obadiah was a man with a foot in both camps. It would be like Paul, our operations manager, deciding to go and become the operations manager of perhaps a Jehovah's Witness hall or a mosque or or something else whilst still being a Christian. It would be like me becoming the manager of an abortion clinic when actually I'm so pro-life I could burst. It would be a compromise against what I personally stand for and what I believe God is. It's obvious that Obadiah had a faith in Yahweh, otherwise we wouldn't have these words about his life. But he's also lived a life of compromise. He's become hungry for power and position to the place where he has taken as many things in his hands as he could and says, I'm doing this for personal gain, but I still do worship Yahweh. He's chosen to live a life somewhere between God and the world. He's chosen a position that forces him to conceal who he really is. Obadiah has done what millions of people around the world do. He's decided to live with a foot in both camps. And he's done what millions of people around the world do today. That is, many are willfully hiding their faith and their biblical convictions to please a world that does not know God. If that wasn't comfortable enough, Jesus, uh, surprisingly, talks about the same kind of thing. So hold your horses. Let's see what Jesus has to say about this. He addresses the same issue twice, at least, in the Gospels. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Obadiah was trying to serve two masters, Yahweh and Ahab, and all that Ahab stood for. If we say with our lips we're going to give our all to God, we can't have a God face and a world face. It's not acceptable. We cannot worship God but also serve money, another religion, a relationship, a career that's not ordained by him. 
And to make it even more uncomfortable, Jesus says this, if anyone is ashamed of me in this adulterous, sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when it comes to his Father's glory. Anyone else want to say, ouch? That's really hard. You cannot serve two masters. I, I do not ever want to make Jesus ashamed of me. We want to live a life that does what that song says. I give my all, everything, my everything to follow him. I think Jesus' words in the second passage are really interesting. Jesus is recognizing here that the generation of the time is sinful, adulterous, whatever that means in that time. What does that mean for us today? I think we could certainly describe our our generation, our, our society presently as adulterous, as sinful. Jesus recognizes that. But he says, even though society is really dark, even though society is really hard to be a Christian in, I don't want you to compromise. I, I don't want you to compromise. I want you to be out there speaking for me, not ashamed of me. We cannot sit on the fence and in one moment worship him and the next moment be ashamed. Let's head back to Kings, slightly more comfortable, not much. It's only when Obadiah meets Elijah that he has to reveal his allegiance. Elijah is Israel's most wanted man at that time. He's blamed for the uh, drought and people want to get him. They've been looking for him for a number of chapters, a number of years. And Obadiah has a choice at this point. Elijah asks him to go to Ahab and say, Ahab, Elijah's here, come meet him. Or he could deny ever meeting Elijah. He could, at that point, not done what Elijah asked of him to do. Verse 9 expresses his true allegiance. Again, I have Mr. Whistleton in my head at this point. He's kind of begging Elijah, please don't send me back to Ahab. He'll kill me. He'll kill me. If you disappear again, then I'm definitely dead. He's almost kind of like, oh, you know, Elijah, this is hard. Don't make me do it. Don't make me do it. Because he'll know I'm a follower of Yahweh. He'll know I know who you are. And he'll know that I didn't kill you instantly on the spot, which is probably what I should do. I sympathize with Obadiah. His life was at risk here, absolutely. But he's almost been found out. Elijah's saying, Obadiah, who do you really worship? Where is your allegiance? Is it to Yahweh who's about to do something absolutely incredible and if you trust him, then it's going to be okay? Or is it to Ahab who worships Baal, who frankly is going to get his comeuppance very soon? It's a tricky place to be for Obadiah. I get that. Obadiah does go in the end and we don't hear anything more of him. Who knows what happened to Obadiah? Was he killed? We don't know. We don't hear anything more of him. And don't get me wrong, I honestly do believe that he did some good things in the eyes of the Lord and he wouldn't have been put as being a devout follower if he didn't have a faith in Yahweh But as far as I can see, his story is a story of compromise. 
of having a foot in both camps. So there comes a question which is very comfortable. What areas of your life are you sitting on the fence about today? Psalm 139 talks about God searching us and knowing our hearts. God knows everything. He knows the times where we have compromised and he knows the times where we are compromising. And a few more questions, I guess, just to, you know, add the pain. Are there areas of the life that the Holy Spirit has been highlighting where I am compromised? Are there things that I'm doing for the Lord that are in secret that shouldn't be in secret? And what areas in my life or my culture or my society that I'm in is God asking me to stand up for that I'm actually just sitting on the fence about because I'm scared or I'm not trusting God about? Let me just talk briefly about these three things before we pray. The first one is a really personal one, isn't it? What areas may I be with one way saying, Jesus, you're my everything, and the next way, I'm living a different way of life. For some of us, that's really big stuff. For some of us, it's the really small, everyday stuff, which God does forgive, but actually he wants us to not compromise on for the rest of our lives. Maybe it's the way we use our mouth, the language we use. Maybe it's the way we parent or the way we're married. Maybe it's, I don't know, God does. And I suspect if this is you, you know, deep inside, that there are areas of compromise that you are living. What about the second one? You could say to me, there are things I'm supposed to do in secret. It says in the Bible, like pray and give and fast and things like that. Yes, we're not talking about those things. There is somebody at work that you're supposed to be standing up for that you're not because you're doing it in secret, by sending them a text message at the end of the day and saying, well done, whereas you should have done it. Or is there someone who doesn't know you're a Christian who should? You know, that there are endless things that we could be doing in secret that God asks us to stand up for and say, do these out there. And the last one I relate to really, really well. Some of you know we uh, run a, a little missional community that works mostly with um, families. And when um, God asked us to do it initially... Uh, we, we might have kicked and screamed about it for a little bit. I'm sure you don't relate to that. God had really clearly spoken to me and Rich about uh, working with the non-Christians in our life. And uh, we could see in the families that we were uh, relating to that they had a hunger for something spiritual, but they didn't really know how to express that. And it was almost like God was saying to us, this is part of society that you can make a difference in. And this is what I'm wanting you to stand up for. And to do that means that you have to give your life to me and to the cause I'm asking you to do it. For a while, we compromised and said, we can do that on the side of all everything else that we do. And God was saying, no, no, no. I'm asking you to take a stand. Stop compromising your time by trying to do too many things and focus on the task for this season. We, we kicked, we screamed, and then we did it. Is there something in our society around us that God is saying to you about today and saying, actually, I've told you this before. It's time to stand up and do it. It's time to not compromise your time anymore. It's time not to compromise where your resources go. It's time to not compromise where your allegiance is. 
Why don't you stand up and trust me and see what I'm about to do? Obadiah, at the end of the day, had a foot in both camps. My prayer for all of us here is that we will live a life that is fully devoted to God. That when we stand before him at the end of days, we can say, yeah, there were points where we needed your grace and there were points where you forgave us. But also at the end of the day, we lived for you. We lived for you and you alone. We didn't worship idols. We didn't live a life of compromise. We sought to live a life that followed you. I'm going to ask the band to come up. We're going to sing that song that we sang right at the beginning again, which is a surprise to the band. May the words of my mouth, and a surprise to the poor guys at the back, so I'll give them a moment. See, those words say, I will follow you whatever. I will surrender all I have for you. And when we say those words and mean it, that means that we are putting ourselves in line with God and rejecting all of the other things that we could compromise on. Anything else that's become an idol in our lives. Anything else that we have chosen to not stand up for that we should be standing for. We're saying, I'm surrendering everything to you, God, because you are Lord of my life. You are the only Lord of my life. So why don't we stand together? And I'm just going to pray for a few minutes as the band play, and then we're going to sing these words. And if you can sing them from the guts of your soul, that would be incredible, because what that means is you're living only for God, and I can guarantee you that's the best way to live. Holy Spirit, we ask in these moments that you will come, you will come into our lives, and do what only you can do. Convict us of the compromises in our hearts. Convict us of the compromises in our brains. And give us the ability and the power to understand your forgiveness, but also to stand strong in you. I want to live only for you. I want to follow only you. And I ask, Lord Jesus, that where there is compromise in our lives, I speak to myself too. That you will unearth it, you will find it, you will show me. You will help me live only for you. We receive your forgiveness for those things. And we thank you for your forgiveness for those things. But before you, Lord Jesus, we say, you alone are God. You alone are Lord. And I will give you everything.